In the name of Jesus, the Lamb of God, amen. Uh, some of you may have noticed that the uh, title of today's message is also that of a movie uh, that is actually based on a true story and it is in theaters right now, uh, starring the actor Kelsey Grammer who uh, has uh, done Shakespeare and he played Frasier uh, on TV. And uh, in this case, he portrays a uh, middle-aged, uh, button-up, straight-laced uh, Christian pastor uh, by the name of Chuck Smith, uh, who led a small and struggling congregation in Costa Mesa, California, known as Calvary Chapel in the late 1960s and, and beyond. And in the movie, The Jesus Revolution, uh, Chuck Smith, he's trying to get some traction uh, in his uh, ministry, but he's also uh, trying to figure out uh, America's youth at that time in our history, uh, many of whom uh, self-identified as hippies uh, because they had uh, long hair and they dressed funny and uh, they liked to listen to rock music and, and they questioned uh, authority. Uh, I get a sense that there may be some former hippies <laughs> among us uh, here, although you don't look like it anymore. Uh, but I've seen some of your throwback photos. At any rate, uh, both in the movie and in the, uh, the true story, through a number of circumstances, uh, the pastor, Chuck Smith, uh, encounters uh, a group of uh, hippies for whom uh, he has great uh, disdain and repulsion, uh, but this particular group uh, happens to love Jesus, which is to say uh, that they really didn't completely fit into the culture that they were part of, and yet, you know, on the other hand, uh, by the same token, uh, they were counterculture enough that they didn't fit into many, if not most, of, of the nation's churches. And uh, in the Jesus Revolution, uh, the story tracks the interactions between this pastor of this 25-member church, Chuck Smith, and uh, these young hippies who happen to love Jesus and their, and their conversations and their meetings and their, and their struggles uh, with Chuck Smith, the pastor, and the members of Calvary Chapel on one hand, and the members of this uh, group that came to be known as the Jesus Movement in the late 60s and also the 70s, and, and the members of which later became known as Jesus Freaks and uh, not hippies. And in the midst of this whole struggle, uh, this pastor has to ask himself some uh, pretty important and potentially life-changing questions. Do I hold on to uh, the traditions and the customs and the rituals and the practices and the values that have defined me all my life and, and shaped my identity as a Christian and as a leader, and in doing so, send the message to these kids that they just don't fit in? Or do I let go of these customs, these traditions, these practices, and these things that have shaped and defined me all my life in order to embrace this new way of ministry for the sake of people about whom I'm very anxious and very uncertain, uh, not to mention the fact that uh, it will probably result in some people leaving Calvary Chapel. And, and the reason I share this with you today is that even though the analogy may not be precise, it does kind of get me thinking of uh, this uh, unplanned late night uh, encounter and conversation 
that takes place between uh, Jesus and a very uh, straight-laced, buttoned-up uh, member of the first century, a religious community leadership whose name is Nicodemus, as you heard. And uh, at the beginning of today's passage, uh, John introduces us to Nicodemus as a Pharisee and a leader of the Jews. And, you know, I've shared with you before that uh, the word Pharisee literally means separatist or separated one. And the Pharisees were those who interpreted and kept and even enforced uh, the religious laws of the day, of which there were literally hundreds uh, through the Pharisees who numbered literally in the thousands and were scattered all over Israel. The term leader of the Jews indicates that Nicodemus wasn't just a, a Pharisee, but he was actually a member of the Sanhedrin, which was essentially basically uh, the Jewish Supreme Court of its day, made up not of thousands, but of just 71 men with the high priest as uh, its leader. And so uh, Nicodemus, he's way up there. And uh, the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they, they stood for a lot of things together, but one thing they stood against together was the ministry of Jesus. Not because he had long hair and a beard, but because he did in fact question their authority. And he said things and he did things that poked holes and undermined their religious life. Things like healing people on the Sabbath, forgiving people who were supposed to be punished under the religious law, associating with people who the Pharisees claimed were unfit and unwelcome because they were unclean, because they were defiled. And so Jesus was a major threat to the Pharisees and to the Sanhedrin because he was undermining, he was a threat to the whole legal, judicial, sacrificial system of getting right with God. And yet it seems that somehow something's going on with this guy, Nicodemus who seeks out this clandestine meeting with Jesus, you know, at night, under the cover of darkness, apart from the Pharisees, apart from the Sanhedrin, and apart from the crowds that were also following Jesus around. And, and they have this conversation together. And the conversation has to do with what it means to be born again, or born from above into this whole new life. And yet Nicodemus, you know, he seems that, you know, he, he doesn't really understand. He doesn't get where Jesus is going with all of this. And so uh, Jesus goes on and he, he says to him that no one will enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and the Spirit, which is a pretty great passage for a day when we celebrate two baptisms in our worship together. And yet Nicodemus, you know, he still doesn't completely understand. He doesn't completely get it. Conversation keeps going back and forth, and there's some tension and struggle between Jesus and this, you know, very buttoned up, straight-laced, uh, first-century religious leader until finally, as you heard, Jesus drops what turns out to be the best-known verse in the whole Bible, John 3.16, in which he gives this man a piece of news that would rock his world if he believed it, in saying to him that you get right with God by trusting that God loves you and that he sent his son into this world for you 
to secure for you this new life. Not because you paid for it as if you could, not because you made sacrifices as if they would ever be enough, but because of his love revealed in the person of Jesus the Christ. And so Jesus is talking about a grace that it just changes everything for those who are reborn into this new life by water and the Spirit. Hence the term revolution, which is defined as a fundamental, radical, and a complete change. Well, at that point, the conversation pretty much ends, and uh, we are not told uh, by John, at least not immediately, you know, what the outcome of all of it was. Some people think that the Nicodemus seeks Jesus out, you know, to do his diligence as a member of the Supreme Court, to, to figure Jesus out, while others have begun to guess that maybe Nicodemus, though he's a Pharisee, though he's a, he's a Supreme Court justice, maybe, maybe he thinks that there's really something to this Jesus, that maybe there's a chance that Jesus could even be the Messiah. But wow, if that was the case, that would have generated a major crisis for Nicodemus, and it would require him to ask some very important and potentially life-changing questions. Do I hold on to the law? Do I hold on to the rituals and the traditions that have shaped me and defined me as a, as a child of God all of my life, and in doing so, perhaps miss out on this new life of the which the rabbi is speaking? Or do I let go of the law, the customs, the rituals, and, and the traditions to follow a guy who heals on the Sabbath? forgives sins outright and claims to love me enough to pay my way into the kingdom. In the movie The Jesus Revolution, as well as in real life, uh, Chuck Smith, who is a pastor of this Calvary Chapel in Costa Mesa, California, he comes down on the side of grace for these Jesus-loving hippies that he found so repulsive and he does it because of the revolution that Jesus created in his heart when he actually met them and interacted with them face to face. He does it in response to the missional implication of John 3.16. And he welcomes them into the life of Calvary Chapel. One of the results of which is that people actually did leave the congregation. Kind of reminds me of uh, a, a Lutheran pastor I know who stood up at a conference several years ago and he said, when I came to my congregation, it was declining. And I changed that immediately. I tripled the rate of decline. <laughs> but at Calvary Chapel, it turns out to be just the opposite. And the worshiping community began to grow so rapidly that they had to put up a circus tent to accommodate a congregation that went from dozens to hundreds to thousands. And now today is represented by more than a thousand different churches all over the country that bear the name of Calvary Chapel, including one that I actually attended myself uh, when I was on one of my sabbaticals. Another uh, result of it was that uh, only a few years later, 80,000 high school and college students 
gathered together in the Cotton Bowl to hear Billy Graham preach and listen to the music of Johnny Cash and Chris Christopherson, among others. Another result, speaking of music, is that this Jesus movement gave birth to what we know today as contemporary Christian music, known back then as Jesus music, and to the beginning of the very first Christian music label known as Maranatha, which was started by none other than Chuck Smith. And that music in the late 60s and early 70s began to work its way into evangelical churches and even the Catholic Church with its folk masses. And then in the 70s and and on into the 80s, it began to occupy places even in other liturgical denominations, including our own denomination, including our congregation, where we pretty much do it all, if you want to stick around for the 11 o'clock service. Along with things like uh, Christian coffee houses and campus ministries and a whole lot more. So that by the spring of 1971, the real life Jesus revolution made the cover of Time magazine. But let's get back to Nicodemus. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, John does not initially tell us the outcome of that late night conversation that he had with Jesus. You have to wait for that. As I've pointed out a number of times before, uh, when you do wait and you keep reading, it turns out that the next time we meet Nicodemus is later on in the Gospel of John in another episode where Nicodemus, the Pharisee of all people, is doing an unthinkable thing. He is defending Jesus in front of, guess who? The Pharisees. And then the next time we meet Nicodemus after that, it's after the crucifixion. When of all people, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, Nicodemus, the uh, member of the Sanhedrin, Nicodemus, the Supreme Court Justice, is found with another man, and he is caring for the body of the crucified Christ, taking it to its place of burial. And you know what's interesting about that is that in doing so, he was violating one of his own laws, which prevented the handling of a dead body, which made you defiled or unclean. But apparently, Nicodemus isn't living under the law at this point. Apparently, this guy is motivated by something else that just may have something to do with John 3.16. And if that isn't enough, in John chapter 19, we are told that Nicodemus the Pharisee provides uh, 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes uh, for the anointing of Jesus' body, which was the usual custom of the Jews to bury. But what is not usual by any stretch of the imagination was the amount. And we know this not from the scriptures, but from history. That 75 pounds of myrrh and aloes was used only for the burial of a king. Which is to say, it's a clue, it's a signal. It's another way for Nicodemus, the Pharisee, to send a message that I cast everything on Jesus because he has created a revolution 
in my heart with the enormity of his phenomenal sacrificial grace. Over the years, you know, I've uh, had to ask myself uh, a couple of, you know, I think important questions from time to time, you know. Would I have followed Jesus out of the synagogue if I was living in one of those first century Galilean towns in which he preached? Or what if I stayed back? What if I played it safe? I've been a Lutheran all my life. Would I have followed Luther out of the church? You know, to a new spirit, a new message, a, a time of renewal and reformation for the church that he dearly loved. Would I have played it safe and stayed back? And in the future, will I come down on the side of grace and of truth with respect to who fits in, to who doesn't, who belongs, and who doesn't? Realizing that at the end of the day, I'm a hippie. And I'm the buttoned up, you know, lawman. You know, I am the prodigal son who just messed up so badly. I am the self-righteous older brother. I'm all of that. And yet he gives me this new birth by water and spirit so that I can live this new life in the family of God because he paid, paid my way into the kingdom. And if he did that for me, who am I to deny that to anybody else in the world? So one of the other things I really liked about the movie, The Jesus Revolution, is that in spite of the fact uh, that the story ends before some painful things actually happen in the life of Calvary Chapel, and while it is also true that I would have my theological uh, disagreements with uh, some of their teachings and practices and, uh, and some of those of the late Pastor Chuck Smith who died in 2013, the movie also makes the point, unlike a lot of other Christian movies, that we have a God who does some pretty great things through people who don't always get it, for people who are deeply, deeply flawed. And that's what I'm doing here. And that is what you are doing here. And that's what our church family is doing here today as we welcome two more into the family by water and spirit. And I think it also explains why. Kelsey Grammer, the guy who plays Pastor Chuck Smith in the movie, I was doing a TV interview just days ago to, to talk about the film. And in the middle of the interview, he stops because he's choked up. He just can't even talk until finally he gets it out that in the context of his own flaws and his own heartbreaks, he says in his words, I've come to terms with all of it, and I have found peace in my faith. I have found peace in Jesus. And so I hope and pray, as I know you do, that we would always be a John 3.16 kind of church, and that like Nicodemus, we would ultimately get it and experience the power 
of the Jesus revolution of our hearts, the radical, fundamental, complete change that he gives to you and me when he paves our way into the kingdom and allows us to serve this world in ways that can spread the revolution to others around us for God's glory, for his honor, for the hope of the world, and for your purpose and for your joy in him. In the name of Jesus, amen.